This episode of The BIP Show is brought to you by OpenTrader. OpenTrader is Australia's most competitive, self-directed retail trading platform for professional traders and those who want to invest like a pro from only $5 per trade. It provides chess-sponsored trading accounts and award-winning charts, combined with ongoing educational support and training. You'll get full autonomy on how you select stock and detailed info on performance across multiple metrics to help you make robust decisions. Open Trader. Invest like a pro from only $5 per trade. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group. I'm here, as always, with James Whelan from VFS Group. How are you now, Paul? We are back for another season. Uh, We got a bit distracted. Um, James, it's not like there's been much going on, though, hey? Nothing going on. I don't know. Things are up, things are down. It's same day. (laughs) Stocks are up, though. Are they? (laughs) Um, Look, there has been lots going on with the number one question in the financial world being the pace of the recovery globally in Australia, um, the US, and the attendant questions that brings about inflation dynamics, um, what central banks may or may not need to do. So to talk about it all, we are joined by Westpac's Global Head of Market Strategy, Rob Rennie. Rob, welcome back to the BIP Show. Great to be back here. We're recording this on Thursday, 20th of May, uh, 2021. Don't forget to hit subscribe, rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Let's get into it. Um, I think one really good place to start, let's let's look at um, uh, commodities. Uh, Rob, um, it's a very uh, Australian question in some ways, but also tells us a lot about what's happening in the global economy, what's driving global demand, uh, demand. iron ore, uh, ridiculous multi-year highs uh, or possibly all-time highs. All-time highs. Yeah, yeah. Um, way above two, um, 200 bucks. Yeah. Um, there's been pretty sharp correction. Uh, I think, you know, today uh, was another down 7% day in yep. futures. Um, but price still very, very elevated. Um, obviously good for Australia, but telling us uh, more about what's happening. Um, uh, what What is going on? Maybe you can uh, uh, start there and we'll get deeper into the commodities picture as we go. Yeah, I mean, you could start and argue commodity super cycle. You can, you can start by looking at supply and demand, you know, particularly within the iron ore market. And I think that's the best place to start. You look at China last year, you know, an incredibly fast recovery onshoring. Chinese GDP as of now would be about 7% above pre-pandemic levels. Growth this year, 10%. We're forecasting 55 6% over the next couple of years. So China has managed this really, really well. Second half of last year and year to date, we had April steel production data out earlier on this week. Yet again, it came in way above my expectations. And I think 12 of the last 14 months, we've seen sequential records in terms of seasonally adjusted steel production. So rather than slowing as it would normally seasonally, it's accelerating and it's accelerating month after month. Now, I'd expected April because we had all these headlines, remember, that in Tangshan, they were going to close down steel production because of air quality. Well, if they closed down steel production in Tangshan region, somewhere else was producing even more steel to offset it because that was a fresh all-time record nominal and seasonally adjusted high. So you get record steel production. Uh, Chinese imports of iron ore uh, are running... They've been running at about 5% annualized growth for the last 15 years. And in the last year, Chinese imports of iron ore are running at about 5% on an annualized growth basis. So that's about an extra 5 million tons that you're pulling in. 
uh, combined Brazil and Australia up until 2017 was running at about 5.5% annualised growth in 2017. And then sequentially through 2018, 2019, 2020, we had a number of one-off disasters, the the, uh, Brumadino catastrophe in Brazil that killed hundreds of people. Uh, We had um, COVID, uh, we had um, tropical cyclone Damien in February of last year. This year we've had La Nina in Brazil. Uh, We had uh, tropical cyclone uh, Saroja in uh, April of this year out of Australia. So we've run through the last three or four years with essentially zero growth. I mean, if you looked at a trend line from 2017 to date, zero growth, China demand continuing at 5% per annum, on and on we go. China has essentially consumed last year 96.5%, 97% of what combined Brazil and, uh, and Australia produced and exported. So if you're buying 97% of available supply, there's only one way price can really go, yeah. and that's been up in an incredible fashion. That's right. It's an interesting question. Is there anybody else out there who might want to buy some of this iron ore? Well, I mean, that, that's another good point. You know, we look at China, but world ex-China demand for iron ore and steel production is rising strongly as well. And that really, that's where the tension is. Uh, you go to Brazil and Australia, you get your iron ore. If you can't get your iron ore there, you've got to go to South Africa, you've got to go to Canada, you've got to go to Ukraine, uh, you know, to, to start to get the additional supply. Yeah, and they don't have the same scale of infrastructure, the, the economies of scale. Correct. that we have. Yeah. Um, are iron ore tonnage prices uh, higher out of some of those markets um, relative are, to Australia? Uh, uh, no. I mean, the, you know, the 62% index is the, the benchmark index, and that's essentially what everyone um, manages their supply to. Um, but higher quality iron ore, and that really is the key point. I mean, the, the 65% iron ore prices really exploded as well because you want the volume, you want the higher quality as China tries to improve the quality of its steel and reduce the emissions, you want higher quality. And that's really where the, the, the demand has been. So what happens, just quickly, what happens with all that steel, right? So is it all consumed, being consumed in China, the, 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 the Chinese output, is it all consumed or, well, is, or is it some of it exported? This is where China is increasingly, because in April of this year, China released a five-year plan, which was basically focused on improving the quality of its steel production. So things like increasing the use of scrap steel, uh, at the moment, um, the actual scrap steel volume that um, China would consume uh, would actually be relatively low. Um, scrap steel in China accounts for about 20% of steel production. If you look at um, the US, it's close to 70%. Uh, the EU is 55%. Russia is 51%. So the global benchmark is much, much higher. So what you can certainly do from a China point of view is build the the industry, the processing industry, and you've got to use different technology, probably electric arc furnaces rather than blast furnaces, or certainly you've got to sort of build more uh, of an industrial pipeline that can actually consume that scrap steel. But if you can do that over coming years, you can presumably reduce your reliance on Australia and Brazil. And that's certainly the announcements that we've had over the last week where China is basically saying, look, we're going to really get on top of this commodity price issue. We're going to make sure that there isn't sign of speculation, particularly in, in, in steel prices. If we can get on top of that, but if we can widen out the source of iron that's coming into the country, and some of that can be scrap, some of it can be going out there and building new mines. There's this there's, um, uh, mine in uh, Guinea uh, the uh, Simandu mine in uh, West Guinea that will start to come in second half of this decade. I was about to mention that. Yes, this was the original talk about that. Eventually, China moves away from from yeah. from, from, from being. I was going to say dependent on us, but okay, let's go with that. Yeah, in, in, into this Guinea mine with the, with the 
the fines are much higher than what the one than what you see here, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. super okay. high quality, super high quality. But the issue is that you've got to build a six hundred kilometer uh, railway line. I mean, I, I've talked to some people in the industry on that, and they basically come back and said, "Look, nameplate costs are supposed to be eighteen billion. Somebody said to me it's probably fifty billion. There was a suggestion that the conveyor belt has got to be built so far out into the Gulf of Guinea that you're basically transporting fifty, hundred million tons of iron over over a conveyor belt, which is maybe ten, fifteen kilometers over sea." You know, the or, they, or, they, or, they, or they just or they just dig out more golf. It's a very Chinese thing to do in this sort of situation too. I mean, but okay, okay. But, but, when was that coming online? I think oh, I that's 2025, 2030. I mean, okay. first ore, you'd be surprised if you see any ore coming out 2025. And that's really the point. You know, China is on this traje- trajectory. Um, and one of the things that you can do is you can stop China from exporting steel, which was your original question. We've basically seen that. Export rebate's gone. Uh, stop exporting steel, uh, a, allow scrap to come back in, reduce the tariffs on scrap. So basically, you're, 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 you're out there looking for any opportunity. Dalian Exchange also last week, and we sort of saw three interventions. One was, we're going to take the Dalian contract, which is currently 62. We'll take iron ore down to 60%. We'll take it to 51, and we'll actually accept iron ore all the way down to, I think, 56%. So Chinese iron ore can be delivered into Ukrainian Ukrainian powder, um, which is one of the grades that's available in Europe. That can actually be delivered into the contract as well. So they're definitely on a pathway to try and reduce this dependency. But the problem really is you're not going to have the volume until you get into the second half, half of this decade. And building out that industry that allows you to use more scrap, it takes time. You've got to import the scrap. You've got to sort the scrap. You've got to build the, the electric arc furnaces. It definitely takes time. Do electric arc furnaces use metallurgical coal in any capacity or the Well the key there, no, you're basically taking scrap and you are melting that that scrap. So it uh, the um, uh, the pollution that uh, uh, you know as a result of that process is much much lower. Right. So environmentally, you want to be in a situation where you're targeting twenty percent at least of your steel production. If you take it up to that global norm of say fifty percent, you've China in any given year would import about a billion tons of iron ore. You can basically replace about 100 million tons of that. If you go, let's, uh, I said before, Europe's 55 percent. Let's ultimately try and get to 50 percent scrap. Instantly, you've taken 100 million tons out of the iron ore that you're going to import as a result of that. So, so all of a sudden, this 55 dollar uh, price target uh, or notional price target that is in some economic assumptions, including Federal Treasury, yeah. um, for uh, the end of. Yeah. yeah, for the next end year. of next year. Yeah. I think I certainly think it looks low, um, and I think it's a smart way to budget because yeah. uh, anything that comes in above that is uh, is extra and it's sensible to be low. Um, but um, uh, all of a sudden, it starts to make sense to me why they would be factoring in that much of a price drop. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair. We probably... I mean, the, 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 the budget statements, budget papers have been forecasting $55 for a number of years. We're nowhere cl- uh, close to it. You know, I think the market has been forecasting lower prices. And what's really happened is just been, you know, China has stayed on this track. I mean, I genuinely think that we're under-investing. We're not seeing the kind of capex that I would like to see in commodities generally. Um, so I think that that is a story. But I think within Australia... Yeah. In particular, 
you know, when I look at Port Hedland, when I look at the individual firms that use Port Hedland to deliver iron ore into the rest of the world, they're all telling us about what their future supply will be if you add that supply together it's way above the maximum capacity. So unless you're actually willing to build up the, um, the outer harbour at Port Hedland, I'm not sure that there's an awful lot. Uh, I'm basically, on the basis of my numbers, I think we're using something in the region of sort of 95% of capacity there. Already. Already, as a, as a result. We also had, remember um, the Duke and Gorge? Um, so Rio, unfortunately, destroying those caves May of last year, the parliamentary inquiry come out December last year, and that recommended significant changes to what's called the Section 18 application. A Section 18 application basically says if damage to an, uh, to an indigenous artefact is unavoidable, it's basically up to the minister to say you can go ahead. Um, mining companies generally have a reasonable portfolio of um, Section 18 applications. The final report is due on the 18th of October. Now, I'm not sure what it's going to say, but I think it may act as a bit of a cap in terms of domestic exploration as well. So I guess the point is that I don't see a huge amount of upside in terms of um, uh, iron ore volumes um, out of Australia in that kind of environment. Different out of Brazil, and I think absolutely versus Q1 this year, volumes are going to rise. So I think we've probably seen something close to, you never want to call the high in iron ore at the moment. Um, but we've got 180, 175 by the end of this year. And that's materially different from $55 in, you know, over that sort of one year period. Mm. Um, so um, overall commodities, and we'll get to um, some specific, uh, specifics in a second, including copper, but overall commodities, uh, and something that we discussed very briefly uh, earlier this week, um, the commodity index being extremely high, uh, the Bloomberg Commodity Index um, b- being extremely high, obviously driven partly by iron ore. Um, but then when you look at the credit impulse in China, um, which is usually uh, which um, usually leads that uh, Bloomberg Commodity Index by around about 12 months, it's been fairly reliable going back about a, uh, 10 or 15 years. Um, the credit impulse um, has uh, slowed um, quite a lot. So basically, there's not as much debt being issued, not as much borrowing happening in um, in the Chinese economy. Um, but the there is a big gap. Those two lines have diverged very significantly uh, yeah. in the past 12 months. Um, now, do you think overall there is, I mean, obviously China, like countries around the world, huge um, fiscal uh, uh you know, help for the economy overall, um, obviously supports borrowing to some extent. Yep. Um, but what do you think is going to happen there? Yeah, look, I think it's a very good question. I mean, the first point that I would make is any year-year comparisons at the moment, you've got to just <laughs> sprinkle a little bit of salt on it uh, because there is a risk. And I think we maybe underestimate the fact that there probably was quite a lot of liquidity provided into uh, China this time last year. And I think we're showing signs of that rolling off. And I think you could make the argument for... Uh, you know, kind of year-year changes in money supply credit pretty much around the world. So there's that. Um, You know, look, I do think that um, China is operating off a more targeted, let's make sure that we are supplying the credit to the industries that we basically want to sponsor going forward. Um, And if that means that we're maybe controlling uh, credit that's available in the, um, uh, you know, the fringe banking system, 
that's probably quite a good thing, really, ultimately, mm. because what we've got to do is we kind of, as we onshore um, that um, that Chinese um, uh, th- that Chinese economy, we're basically guaranteeing that the economy, you know, the future the, the future growth is built on investment, but it's also built on domestic wealth creation. Um, as well, and what you want to basically make sure is you don't start to build up excess in terms of financial markets, housing, etc. So yeah, I mean, it, it certainly could point to the idea that we're seeing some signs of slowing in activity, particularly in housing. Um, uh, I think that's probably fair, but again, I would caution about reading too much into the um, uh, into the year. And look, ultimately, what I tend to do is go down to the data each and every month. Um, you know, if steel production is carrying on at the kind of pace that we are seeing at the moment, that's telling you an important story. When I look at things like um, um, steel inventory within the dealership community, it's falling in line with what it should be doing at the at the moment. So that steel is being consumed. Um, and I think that basically tells you that momentum within the Chinese economy is continuing, even if we're sort of trying to slow um, build up of sort of excess um, uh, liquidity in certain yeah, sectors. And there's all the extra stuff that comes as, as that steel gets consumed. So the um, productivity boosts you get at the infrastructure Correct. help, the, um, the buildings getting filled with stuff, the um, uh, ships getting built and yeah. unlocking more uh, capacity, trains, etc. Yeah. Um, so um, let's talk about um, Dr. Copper. Um, now, James, a few months ago, um, I think some publication somewhere interviewed a whole bunch of investment managers about um, what they thought was the big structural uh, theme to get long uh, over the next couple of months. <laughs> and, and, and you had all of these, all of these guys. Uh, and Smart guys. guys. And when I say guys, I mean all of these guys. And girls. Men and women from uh, investment managers from all sorts of firms talking about, well, structural, uh, uh, you know, uh, leverage exposure. <laughs> I know where you go. And, uh, and, um, and everybody had their name, you know, from their firm and then their, you know, their thesis and then their conclusion. And James's response was one word: copper. Copper. It was. What, what, what would you? What would you suggest? That's the, the, the best. The best way of leveraging into the uh, the the EV boom and the and the and the and the modern. And, and it was. And it was. You know, where's the best investment? And then there were paragraphs written by everyone else who was in there, and there was big level, high level, everything like that. It was just. Copper by copper, yeah. That was so, and uh, so here we are. Do you want me to go into detail? Well, <laughs> copper all-time highs. Yeah, um, here it is. Yeah, so well done. <laughs> yeah. oh, you bought it. I bought it. I bought it. I bought it. It's it's it, it had to be a part of the leverage, uh, but but it was just the idea of doing that. The whole thing of the of why you would why you would buy copper was I don't want to buy Tesla because they've got a great battery because they're they're part of that EV revolution and saving the world or any bollocks like that, if I may. Um, that that I'd rather buy yep. the thing that goes into the car, the, 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 the thing that at a basic fact three times as much copper goes into an electric vehicle than does into an internal, an internal combustion yep. engine vehicle. Yep. That's, that's that basic. You put that in front of me, okay, I don't really need to see many other numbers apart from that. Yep. There's not a lot of, we'll go into this a second, there's not a lot of production coming online yep. to be able to keep up with it. And, right. and in the same way that I like food, that I can't just snap my fingers and, and have a corn crop ready to go. That's actually got a lead time. I can't do. I can't just grow soybeans. Yep. I can't just then feed those so, the, the protein from the soybeans to the the the, the pigs to be able to make pork right. to be able to feed a, a Chinese population. It doesn't work that way. Yep. And that's why that's why a copper for me is it was was just far and away that if you want that best leverage, don't overthink it. Don't worry about 
price earnings yep. forecasts or anything like that for individual companies. This is the piece of, of, of material that needs to go into all of these cars that changes the world. Yeah. No, Luke and I would totally agree. And to be perfectly honest, that's very much my thesis as well. Remember, I made the point there about um, 2017. I mean, for me, 2017 was a very important year from a mining point of view um, because we basically saw, and you can argue that it's one-off factors that have slowed um, iron ore production to essentially a zero trajectory. I mean, essentially, if I draw a trend line from the beginning of 2017 to date, it's got a zero in terms of the uh, the rate of change. If I do the same for copper, it's got about a a 0.5% or a 1% um, rate of increase. From 2017, um, global metals production really stalled, and that was because we had that massive mining boom where we all went out and invested incredible amounts of uh, capex, dug all of these mines, built all of the infrastructure, commodity prices collapsed through yeah. um, 2015, 2016. And basically uh, equity markets and credit markets basically said to mining companies around the world, rather than inv- investing, just return the cash. And that's essentially what has been happening for the last four years since then. And we are in a situation where there has not been a fresh copper um, uh, investment or mine or project announced in the last 18 months. Yeah. And we can see all of these changes. We can see it in uh, Biden's, um, you know, uh, American jobs plan. He basically is saying he's going to build 500,000 charge stations by 2030. We've got 100,000 at the moment in uh, in the US. In China, there's 800,000. So massive investment. When you look at the European recovery plan, the same. Is it three? I, I would actually say it's probably five times the amount of copper when you allow for the, the, the charging net. Everything else, got, yeah, yeah. just in the straight, in the that. vehicle, it's just three times. That's and it. Listen, so. I mean, I chuck a couple of numbers here. Go for it, go for it, yeah, go for it. I so um, I would basically say um, that, so I said before, um, global primary copper production in 2020, it was up about 0.2% versus the previous year, so just above um, 20.6 million tonnes. Um, and up until 2017, it was growing at about 3.5% growth. So essentially, we basically stopped, as did many other metals. But when you actually look at um, the, um, the numbers involved, so let's say we produce about 9 million cars per year globally. That's where it runs at. Mm. And let's say going forward in a few years from now, 30% of those are going to be electric vehicles. Reasonable assumption. I don't know. That's If you go through the numbers, about 20, uh, 20% of Global primary copper is transportation vehicles. Yep. Um, Will you then say, well, that's about an extra 2 million tonnes of copper that's needed. So that's a 10% (coughs) rise in terms of global copper production. Then you've still got to build out all of the infrastructure. So that's maybe 12, maybe 15%. At the moment, we're running at about 0.2 annual growth. So you've basically got to get out there and you've got to persuade the mining companies to start investing. If I throw some numbers... Well, at these, at these prices, it'd be difficult not to. Exactly. Okay, hit so, me. Listen, at Rio and BHP, back in 2012, CapEx um, summed $39 billion. This year, $14.8 billion mm. is the forecast. Now, Rio doesn't produce uh, copper. BHP's 50% iron ore, 25% copper. And BHP is bringing on in more copper. But I think that story is probably going to be 
pretty, uh, you know, that model is going to be the same for most other miners uh, when you look at their uh, their balance sheet. So combined BHP and Rio uh, would actually have dividend payouts this year forecast of about $38 billion. So the money that they were investing in 2012 in new mines, they're essentially returning that money to shareholders around the world. So which is my, great, great for shareholders. Which is great for shareholders, but I think so. May, I, well, there's a couple <laughs> of things going on here. One is maybe we will have to wait and see uh, what copper looks like in in six months from now. Does Biden get his build back better? Does he get his uh, American Jobs Plan um, through the House, through the Senate? Do yeah. we actually start to build those stations? But um, well, there's also Europe, isn't there? Some regu- exactly. regulatory changes coming reg- in Europe. Plus, Around the we world. Have, plus, we have German elections um, later on this year. You could see, you know, um, uh, you could see CDU, CSU uh, chancellor. You could see a green chancellor. That's, you know, that's a big change. In Chile at the moment, we had an enormous. I don't know if anyone watched Chilean sort of politics. We had an enormous swing to uh, the left in uh, Chile. And um, and Chile was about 28%, so a third of global copper production. Uh, there was a bill that passed the lower house a couple of weeks ago that basically said we are going to tax That's it, yeah. I was going to ask you, yeah. At 75%. This is in Chile, right? In Chile. Yeah. Tax uh, exports or? This is at sales. Yeah. At 75 cents in the dollar uh, when you have uh, copper prices above $4 a pound. We're at four seventy at the moment. So as soon as you hit, as soon as you hit four bucks a pound, four pounds. Sorry, yeah, yeah, four bucks a pound. We'll charge you seventy five percent tax. Cents. Yeah. Oh, so we'll charge you seventy five cents on that on, on that, that on that on that dollar. Oh, not on the overs, 70, on the on, on, on everything on the sales. So the sales that you yeah, generate, seventy five percent. It just does. So. I mean, Chile being 28% of <laughs> copper production. Now, we're watching this. This is all going on in the background. At the moment, BHP is negotiating with workers in Chile as well. Uh, it brought into uh, Santiago, it brought uh, remote um, uh, workers, and they basically voted to strike. We're going through a mediation process as well. So we've got Chilean politics and Peru's probably heading in the same direction. You add the two together, you get 40% yep. of global copper production as well. So, um, uh, so Latin American and um, or sort of South American uh, copper production would be down in the last year five five and a half percent. That's COVID, and then we're potentially looking at very significant changes that you know that that will have a big impact on future mines in the country as well. Yeah. So I think if you step you know you dive into the numbers a wee bit more, you actually become more convinced that to force this boom in, in mining investment. And remember, it's probably going to take you three to five years to come up with... At least. Um, at least. At least. And then you're just playing catch-up too. And you're playing catch-up to prices. Yep. So to me, I think it's... It, look, it, we could get through the end of this year. Remember, we've got midterms next year. Mm. We could get through the German election. We don't see green... You know, there, there could. there's a lot of politics in this. And let's face it, at a local, uh, um, you know, Central American um, level, there's a lot of risks here as well. But it's very easy to plot a path that takes you copper 12,000 and potentially beyond that. Yeah. And I like that as a core trade still. I've, I've, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. I know that Goldman's was it. Goldman's say that it's got to be a double from here. Yeah. Which, wow. um, which, which was pretty bullish. Yeah. But isn't well, when <laughs> you when, when yeah. <laughs> in this in this world that's pretty tame, I reckon, for the way for the, <laughs> yeah, the true, certain true. price tags that people have slapped on things. True. But um, 
Do you have a number that, that, that you want to throw uh, out there? We're, we're not. So this is my own personal views. We're not forecasting um, significantly higher. But, I mean, the difference really with the copper trade vis-a-vis iron ore or steel or anything like that is the demand is coming. You know, it might be 30, 40, uh, 25, 30 percent China, but it's going to be 25, 30 US. It's going to be 25, 30 Europe as well. And mm. this is, to me, this is a... It's not a commodity super cycle. It's not even a demand supply imbalance. It's a you know building back better super cycle that really is going to drive that demand. Yeah, and, and one of the things that we're trying to do with with season three of the of the BIP show is trying to make it a little bit more how you how you actually put it into play and how you yep. how you put it into relevance how you, how you actually play the trail on that and and there's obviously uh, there's 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 copper ETFs and that sort of thing, but it's more just about the general theory that if you get an investment case that's put in front of you where there is there is no increase to the supply that is yep. going to come online and there is no change downwards to demand and, in fact, a, a colossally upwards change to the demand on it. There is really only one thing that you that, yep. that, that you can do in that scenario and it's a good, like you said, it's a good base base case core holding. Yeah. So that 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 there is the tick that box on the on the first trade that you and get out of season three. Very quickly, the, the economics of it are very interesting at the moment. You've got a very backwardated curve, front end high, Ooh, uh, back yeah. end low. Yeah. So as you roll as a as a holder of the commodity, you know either uh, through a contract or through an ETF, that roll it's a positive carry situation. You know yep. we've actually moved, and this is where financial. Uh, money will come into commodities. We basically have got the highest degree. I'll, I'll take a sample of 25 different commodities and I'll look at it each day. And what is the today versus a year out? What is the positive or negative? So what's the contangle negative? What's the backwardation from a positive point of view? And we are basically through the 2013 highs. So the previous commodity boom. So as a holder of an ETF or holder of the the, the, the future, as you roll that, it's a positive carry situation. So it becomes very, very attractive to own the actual metal rather than the, the miner. Because in that situation, miners will quite often make money by holding uh, uh, inventory and then rolling it into the futures contract. And in a situation where you're in a contangle, you know, by basically putting out there, holding it and putting it into the futures market, you yeah. make money. At the moment, you don't. You basically just want to supply it into the um, into the spot market as quickly as you can. Perfect. So physically owning the, uh, the futures, um, or, you know, or, or the ETF that will hold to that, you know, definitely makes sense. Perfect. All of these high commodity prices uh, are probably uh, among the many things that are driving all the talk about inflation. We're going to talk about that in a second. But uh, first, quickly, a reminder that this episode of The BIP Show is brought to you by OpenTrader. OpenTrader is Australia's most competitive self-directed retail trading platform for professional traders and those who want to invest like a pro from only $5 per trade. Right, inflation. Good. A few people have been talking about it. Uh, fund manager survey uh, says it is emerging as uh, the top. Uh, uh, it had a time. It had a risk. time in the sun as being the first, as being the biggest tail risk that, that, yeah. that was on the on the radar on that one. Yeah. So it's uh, it's definitely up there. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> look, there's a lot to cover in this. Um, should we start with um, my own inflation story? My, uh, my You're local? not doing the chicken story. No, it's not the chicken story. <laughs> okay, I promise. On. And I still on, do the chicken story. I have still not told that's a deflation story. I've still okay. not told the, de- <laughs> the chicken story on the BIP show. Can you do the inflation story in 45 seconds? I can. Hit it. Uh, my local Japanese sushi put up its prices for delivery by 20% recently. 20% is a big number. Wow. 
Yeah, that's that's Peruvian government Chilean Chilean copper price sort of mm. stuff like that. Beef, beef teriyaki nine dollars. The whole uh, across nine, the board. Nine dollars fifty but, but, to like uh, twelve. Ah, dollars. now you know that I'm the food I'm the food guy. Was it across the board? Yeah. So it wasn't just specific, specifically in beef. Mm. And if you Markup. want the vegetarian one, then, th- th- then that's it. It's just across the board, twenty percent. That's it. Yeah, I don't think everything went up by twenty percent. They just pro- they priced a few things to make them not. Round numbers. What's the market exactly. reaction been, Alan Cole? <laughs> the market reaction in my house has been like, you know, what? We're, we're sushi, sushi hodlers. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll buy it. Um, you know, the price is going more. It's going higher, so let's buy more of it. More um, people buying yeah, it, right? Yeah, yeah there's yeah. That, that scarcity thing. Look, I, th- I definitely think some of that, the, what's going on there is um, – the dynamics of delivery have changed for restaurants. They have to yeah. do so much more of it. They have to service much more of it. The, their service composition has changed. So, um, and they're probably doing a little bit too cheaply. Um, so, no, fair enough. There's it's a good time, sushi. There's, there's there's a time to ask ask people to pay a bit more, and now is that time to do so. Mm-hmm. And I think that people are reaching into their pockets before. Okay. But um, l- let's let, let let's look at it. Everybody everybody is talking about this. Yeah. Um, Lots of different commodities, like lumber has been the big one the last couple of months. In the States, uh, you can't get wood. This has been uh, also a question in, in Australia. It's too, here apparently. too. You can't, yeah, get, yeah, you can't get lumber here. You can't get timber. Yep. Um, prices for tradies um, doing jobs are, are very high here. Um, uh, semiconductors? So, semi, yep. Yeah, semiconductors. Food. food. Keep going. Um, uh, and there's all this talk about um, so Baltic Dry, the shipping index. Yeah. Um, so the cost of shipping on some routes – astronomical um, in, in some places. And there are, just because of the different restrictions that are all around, all around the world, there are supply bottlenecks in all sorts of supply chains. So, Rob, I'm dying to ask you how you see this from your perspective. Yeah, Luke, and I mean, I'd, I'd start by maybe saying that um, uh, economists don't necessarily do a particularly good job of sort of looking at this and really coming up with um, uh, the near-term risks. And I'm definitely... I mean, I like the idea that that inflation is coming, but I think it is probably temporary. And I say that because we probably assumed um, when we shut everything down that that was an enormous supply shock, that the demand shock probably changed. We stopped um, consuming services and we maybe went out and bought you know, the equipment that we would need at home in the, in the home office. But the, the demand side of it probably didn't get impacted as much. I mean, it it was in the first instance, it was a supply shock. Switch everything back on, bring everyone back in. You have demand just screaming higher. And then for various reasons, we've had a lot of one-off, you know, the uh, ever given, you know, the Suez Canal uh, being blocked for six days. I know, but no, (laughs) we didn't really understand. But things like, um, you know, TSMC and and, uh, semiconductor, the issues there, ordering, not ordering, you know, all of these sort of things. The idea that demand, economists tend to think that demand and supply move together. I would argue that they don't. And there are a number of structural blockages that that are creating these um, these issues. So you asked about trade. I mean, I was just looking at yesterday over the last couple of days. If you look at um, the key West, Post, uh, West Coast ports in the, um, the U.S., the actual physical volume, and I'm basically saying how many 20-foot uh, 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 containers basically come in over the last three months, and this is April data, it's up 53% versus the same period last year, 53%, 31 versus the, um, versus the year before. Um, uh, last time I looked, there was 19 vessels sitting off uh, LA, and that's down from a peak of uh, 21. But can you imagine what 21 Evergivens look like basically parked there 
and waiting to come into port to um, offload. So the logistics of bringing all of that. And then you look at Walmart, um, you look at um, who else? Um, Target's reported their reporting season that we've seen in the last couple of days. Basically, everybody, Home Depot, they were 32.7 up year on year for the strong. last quarter. Yeah, it was all strong then. It's, so it's, you know, it's apparel. I went out and bought new shirts because I'm back in the office. Um, you know, we've all been out and bought household items. We bought garden equipment, etc. Google searching for those terms has actually gone through the Correct. roof as well Correct. on those things. Yeah. On, on public transport, pet walking, um, business, business casual, Google search terms has gone, has gone up through the roof. People are going back to work. Yeah. Sorry, Rob. Yeah, so that, I mean, that, you know, while it creates maybe slightly amusing, you know, kind of anecdotes, I think from a business point of view, there are significant risks. And you look at chip developments, um, the time taken between ordering and getting delivery uh, for complex chips at the moment is about 17 weeks. Um, So that's why um, Ford, they announced recently their Michigan assembly plant will actually be shut down May 17, May 24. For two weeks, they're basically going to shut down all production of the Ranger and the Bronco model that they make out of Michigan because they cannot get the chips that go into the cars. And this is all part of that so perfectly, perfectly priced recovery track. So this is where when you actually, and I, again, I think it's sort of, it's a useful way of sort of thinking about it. When you look at jobs openings, you know, when you look at the jolts data, forget the non-farm payrolls because, you know, there's so many moving parts. But if you look at it within the jolts survey, so it's a month delayed, the ratio of job openings to actual hires has gone through the roof. And I think that reflects the fact that the supply of labor, um, there's a lot of people that are basically saying, I don't yet feel safe or I have a child at home or... Um, a, I'm being paid so much to stay at home and I don't necessarily want to go and do that fairly unpleasant so job. I, and the response to that is the, going to be? Well, the response to that is that we've got to carry on more, but clearly what you want to do is make sure that you vaccinate, you open the economy, and then once we're in a, in a situation where you can start stop sending the checks through the post, presumably we get into a better situation. But I can see, I can see a summer... Now, there's also this question of labour supply, and if you're tight on labour supply... You start paying people more, right? Correct. To get them in. Uh, Absolutely. So that that is the same way that you're going to have to pay more to get those chips to go into that car so that you don't have to shut down that plant. You're going to be paying workers an awful lot more to come in and do it. So I think that we do have a, a period of sort of three, four months where if you actually look at core CPI, it's 0.9. The last core CPI at 0.9, I think, was 1981. Mm. Something like that. So I think we're, you know, that's... That's unheard of. And I think, I'm not, I'm not saying we're going to get more 0.9s, but we're probably going to get more 0.345s because I do think that there is more pressure to come. So that's going to give you a difficult summer period. Jackson Hole would be August. If we're in a situation where, um, you know, various Fed members are sort of looking at inflation development slightly uncomfortably. And I think US, I mean, I was very surprised last week and over the last couple of weeks that US 10-year yields aren't higher. If somebody said to me, Core CPI is going to be 0.9. Where should the where should the, or where should the 10 year US yield be? I would have probably been saying 190. Would probably seen. I would have got a one, yeah, 185 would have been fair yeah. to me. 185, well, 190. Well, but, but also we're in this weird world where if you can get 1.6 percent on a safe asset, like you'll buy that all day, right? So correct. Um, yeah. Like what 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 incentive is there for particularly if you've got cash that's sitting around doing nothing? 
Um, yep. uh, you know, and you can get close to two percent. Yeah, no, yeah, I totally yeah. agree. But even yeah. Ger- you know, ten-year uh, German bunts, we're about to see zero. We haven't seen that for a long, long, no. long, long, long yeah. time. Yeah, the fact, so. yeah, it's it's it, Europe is definitely on the on the way back. Did you want to go into Europe a touch on oh, that? Yeah, look, I, I do. I think there's a lot to be said for Europe getting its um, uh, vaccination um, house in order. Um, and, you know, we've got the beginnings of reopening of some of the borders. You're going to start to see some intercontinental travel, international travel across um, European borders as yep. well. Um, I, I quite like it as a story. I like it from an equity point of view. I think it's under-owned. Um, a, and, um, a, you know, I can still see euro higher. Uh, sure, 122 feels expensive from a euro point of view, but I wouldn't be surprised to see the strength there. The other thing that I am watching very, very closely is just the, uh, uh, the, the German elections. I mean, I definitely felt that the CDU made a mistake picking um, Laschet as the, uh, their candidate rather than Soder. Soder had the popularity, I think, from a... Laschet has been harmed by um, uh, PPE sort of scandals. There was a number of German politicians that basically handed out contracts to family members to <laughs> supply PPE. Get um, out. Uh, get out of it. Couldn't, um, couldn't and, happen um, here. Yeah, that um, Lash, you know, uh, picking Laschet a mistake. And I think it probably, the chances of us seeing Annalena Baerbock uh, green as a chancellor in Germany, and then you think what that does for um, that uh, European recovery fund, um, uh, you know, sustainable investment, sustainable jobs, uh, more recovery fund, more investment in green, switch off, you know, the last nuclear power, switch off coal, et cetera, all of those. You know, to me, I, I think that's a fascinating dynamic. Um, and uh, I absolutely think that Europe really, really, really wants to be involved in um, in that story, particularly the battery story, you know, developing that battery technology. Yeah. I think that's something that we could see. So depending on how uh, German elections go, um, yeah, I think that's going to be interesting to watch later on this year. So one of the big questions and, and something uh, we've talked about uh, a lot, uh, Rob, in the times we've spoken over the years, has been this emerging theme of mercantilism, and it was yeah. um, uh, something that was obviously huge yeah. uh, under the previous uh, White House administration. Uh, but COVID also um, shone a big, uh, very intense uh, spotlight on this question of um, how interconnected and interdependent uh, supply chains are. Um, how global trade is just you know if you shut it down, if there are things that stop it functioning properly, um, the, the amount of problems that that can cause. And uh, we're, as we've just been discussing, talking about the inflation question, yeah. um, there's a lot of that that's probably going to take years to iron out uh, from here. Um, but um, beyond the restrictions that COVID sort of naturally imposes, right, um, is this mercantilism theme still important in the global economy? Uh, certainly, you know, in Australia we feel it with tariffs coming from China on um, a range of different products, et cetera. There's all this unresolved stuff between US and China. Um, uh, how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that, that the supply chain, to me, the supply, the supply chain issue is something that you've really got to address. Uh, and Biden's very much put that on the, uh, the policy agenda. So by America... Um, the the American Jobs Act, etc., I think is very, very focused on those strategic industries that, that the U.S. has fallen way behind. 
Um, and if that's, I mean, it's not really mercantilism so much as it is uh, really making sure that we are not beholden to another um, superpower um, to produce the kind of commodities that we need. China mines 31% of nickel um, uh, around the world. Um, the US mines zero. China processes 65% of nickel and 59% of lithium. Um, the US produces 1% and 4% of those. Um, China produces 60% of cathodes, 80%, 83% of anodes. Uh, uh, the US produces um, zero. Um, so essentially, um, you know, those um, power walls, um, you know, all of those batteries that we're going to need in the future at every stage of the production process, um, uh, the US literally is so far behind, it's almost not true. So if you think that um, the, the value, I mean, the, the battery represents about 30% of the cost of an electric vehicle. Um, I'm not sure what the engine represents at the moment in an ICE, but it's not going to be anything like that. And remember, when you sell somebody an ICE, that you basically are selling that person a guaranteed payment stream that is going to come back to you from a service point of view. Um, electric vehicles have got nowhere near the moving parts. Um, uh, therefore, that future stream of, of service money that is going to come back to the, the, you know, the American industry just doesn't I exist. I can actually feel my heart rate increasing. So, so basically know. what you are talking yeah. about here is the complete decimation of the end-to-end -end auto industry in the, in the U.S. And, unless you actually address this. Mm -hmm. And you've got to start getting out there and building these, um, these plants that will um, uh, consume, develop, um, a, and produce, ultimately produce those um, uh, lithium-ion batteries and develop the technology, develop the batteries. That's what Europe is going after in a very, very big way. And I think that's, um, you know, that is a key area of focus um, that um, uh, uh, the US basically wants to, uh, to get to. And you can argue the same from a chips point of view as well. If you are beholden on Taiwan to deliver those chips and it takes 17 weeks to get those chips to you, what happens if something hap you know something mm. else happens within mm. that supply chain and you suddenly have to switch off your auto plant as well you're looking extremely vulnerable and that to me it's not it's not mercantilism it's basically just saying what have we done to the supply chains just in time you know was the great great catch uh, uh, cry and that just doesn't work uh, in this kind of world Exactly. Um, I, I, one super quick last question we're, we're, we're out of time but um, super quickly um, Something you hardly hear any discussion on anymore is the Aussie dollar. Um, poor battler. Um, that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's been rattling around at uh, kind of 77, 78 cents uh, for, well, everything feels like, uh, like a drawn out time at the moment, for, but for a long time. Um, look, um, uh, rates aren't going to move. Uh, well, you know, um, the official cash rate and um, the three year bond rate not going to move for a while. Uh, inflation looks uh, benign, um, but um, how do you think about the Aussie at the moment? Yeah, look, I, I tend to view it as a buy on dips. Um, we issued a uh, buy recommendation early May, 7680. Um, a, and the real reason that we did that was the strength in commodity prices. The Australian dollar, where it is currently valued, so if I throw commodity prices, interest rate differentials, various measures of, of, of volatility priced in different markets, into my uh, fair value model, I basically have a fair value model that says we should be trading at 83 cents 
and below 83. 83 cents, we should be uh, anything below 81 and a half. And you can actually come up with an interesting thought experiment here. Um, regularly, and again in the minutes this week, the RBA argued that the Australian dollar is lower than it might have been otherwise. And the otherwise is if we didn't have YCCQE, um, a, where might it be? Now, I can construct a thought experiment whereby I, I look at interest rate differentials, but I exclude the three-year sector, which is where the, the, the impact of YCC. If I look at it on purely on a 10-year um, sector, then basically the Australian dollar on a TWI basis should be about another 5% higher, so about 7.5% higher on a US dollar basis, which basically says were it not for QE, we should be trading at 89 cents at the moment. So I actually think one of the reasons that nobody's talking too much about it, the answer to why, why is that the case is because we're probably pretty happy where commodity prices are. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Not, yeah. let's not attract too much attention. Yeah, don't, don't, go, don't go mention that too much. I would be buried on my US holdings that are unhedged. That's it. Anyway, Paul, do, can I do the, do the last thing? Of course. To... Open trader. For professional traders and those who want to invest like a pro, from only $5 a trade. Open Trader, invest like a pro, from only $5 per trade. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show. Uh, and uh, we are on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The Bip Show. We're also there individually at Colgo, at James Whelan 42 and at Robert underscore underscore Rennie. Good enough. Um, uh, uh, and um, Rob uh, frequently shares links to his research and, uh, and other insights on there. Um, highly recommend, uh, as I'm sure if you've got to this stage in the show, you'll know that it is a very high quality analysis. Um, so again, don't forget to hit subscribe, rate the show. Uh, we love those five-star ratings. Thanks, everybody. Um, the show is produced by Rick Salter this week. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.